This is Out of the Crisis. I'm Eric Ries. What will be the cost of this crisis? The human toll has already been unimaginable. And we don't know what the long-term effects on our economy, on our society, on our civic fabric are going to be. We have seen trillions of dollars of spending and expansionary monetary policy, which seem like they're very expensive. But compared to the magnitude of GDP contraction and mass unemployment, depression economics, they're only a drop in the bucket. The hard truth is we have not implemented effective public health policies that would have made it worth the cost. Don't let anyone tell you the United States has had a lockdown. We still haven't done it. We have the capacity, if we want to, to pay every person to stay at home. There is no excuse for the fact that white-collar workers and those of us who can work at home sit cushy in our offices, slightly frustrated, while essential workers are being asked to risk their lives every day while the pandemic rages unchecked. We can afford to do better. If we went back in time, what would have happened if instead of anemic shelter-in-place orders, followed by a patchwork of economic supports, we had completely shuttered the economy and paid people to stay at home? What would that have cost? And what would have been the returns? To find out the answer, I spoke to Noah Smith and Brad DeLong. Noah is a former finance professor and a current columnist for Bloomberg. Brad is an economics professor at the University of California and a former Treasury Department official from the Clinton administration. As you'll see, they don't agree on everything, or even much, but both said the same thing in regards to this crisis. We missed and are still missing a massive opportunity to save lives and rebuild our economy. Here's my conversation with Noah Smith and Brad DeLong. I'm Brad DeLong, professor of economics at the University of California and chief economist of the Blum Center, also a weblogger at the Washington Center for Equitable Growth, and sometime deputy assistant secretary of the U.S. Treasury for Economic Policy in the Clinton administration. I am Noah Smith, opinion writer for Bloomberg Opinion, former finance professor at Stony Brook University. Gentlemen, thank you so much for coming on. Uh, really appreciate you taking the time. I want to get a sense before we get into uh, the topic. How are you both doing? This has been a difficult time for a lot of a lot of folks, a lot of families. Um, how has the quarantine been for each of you? Well, from my perspective, the anti-anxiety medications are properly dosed and that I'm neither waking up at 2 a.m., unable to fall asleep again for hours and hours, nor I'm in the sense in which important deadlines go past and I say, wee, wee, wee. Um, I'm living here with my, in the Elmwood neighborhood of Berkeley with my wife, um, one of our children who graduated from Amherst College and is working in San Francisco, and my 86-year-old mother-in-law, who we evacuated from her assisted living place when the crisis began, and she's now hunkering down in the cottage in the backyard, which I call sometimes in front of her the quarantine hut. Noah, how about you? How are you doing? I'm doing great. I do not take any anti-anxiety medications. I am holding up fine. Uh, all I have are my two chubby pet rabbits who live with me and um, provide me with uh, companionship. And um, yeah, no, it's uh, it's interesting watching history unfold, even if history is often disastrous. And so, you know, I'm just uh, here for the ride. So Brad, let me start with you. Um, this is the first time we're having a conversation uh, in this series that's really dedicated to economics. So maybe give us a bit of a overview of what your academic focus uh, has been uh, over the years and, and what you were focused on before the pandemic. It's been economic history. It's been macroeconomics. It's been finance. It's been political economy. I've tended to follow the strategy of thinking about working on whatever seems absolutely the most interesting, important thing I can think about at any one moment in time. And that has been... Um, considerably successful. I suppose my biggest regret is that Larry Summers and I failed to move the needle on the economics profession at the start of the 2010s with respect to our position that massive expansionary fiscal stimulus back in 2010 
having the government buy a lot of stuff and either print money to pay for it or sell bonds to pay for it. There was little difference, given how low interest rates are, um, that that would have materially accelerated the recovery and gotten us back to full employment much, much faster. We failed to move the needle back then. I think now our position has now become the conventional wisdom and people who would have been strongly opposed to it back in 2010 have either recanted or are being very, very quiet, with the exception of a semi-lunatic fringe out on the right. Why do you think that project was a failure then? I really do not know. That is, there were lots of places where different people peeled off of the chain of argument we constructed, which was rather long. That is, there were some people who thought that fiscal policy was by definition, it was by metaphysical necessity, ineffective. There were a bunch of people who thought that fiscal policy was almost certainly weak. There were a bunch of people who thought that the U.S., the tolerance for on the part of investors for the risk involved in holding U.S. bonds was very slow. There were bunches of people who thought that the fact the market was saying that appetite for U.S. government bonds was immense, was a false price that would soon turn out to be an equilibrium, fragile equilibrium that would soon break down. Um, There were people who thought that even though a properly managed expansionary fiscal policy would be a good thing. You could not trust the government to manage it properly. There were people who thought that even if you could trust the government to manage it properly, you could not trust the Democratic Party um, to manage it properly and that the Republican Party was unconvincible. There were lots of steps at which people could get off of the commuter rail before its destination. And different groups each found a reason to get off the train. And so when we arrived at our destination, there was me, Larry, a few more people. Um, That was it. Since then, there have been lots of people coming on board. I suppose most recently, former American Economic Association President Olivier Blanchard in his presidential address a year and a bit ago. But, you know, we failed As a result, recovery took a decade and was massively incomplete, um, and the world is much worse for it. Talk a little bit about how the world would be different now, at least entering into this decade, if different economic choices had been made in the 2010s. Oh, if you get back to full employment by 2012 rather than by 2017 or so. And define full employment for us. Well, full employment is when people's predictions that inflation is going to start drifting up are not always falsified, right? You can tell you're at full employment when workers actually begin to dare to ask for raises. Mm -hmm. And so we begin to see wage levels drifting up at a increasing rate. And we begin to see firms both worrying that they have to raise prices because their labor costs are going up and feeling that they're able to raise prices because demand is strong enough. You know, the beginnings of, say, some sort of wage push arriving out of the fact that workers are scarce and businesses are starting to be willing to bid more for them, Um, something we really have not seen since 1999. So your view is that that could have happened five years sooner, from 2017 to 2012? Is that the idea? Well, we still really weren't there in 2018, 2019. Um, We were. Well, we were starting to see wage compression. We were on the edge where it was no longer stupid to say we were there. Jason Furman released a report uh, showing that sort of, uh, you know, lower end wages had started increasing from 2014. Yes. And, um, and so, you know, higher end wages were still stagnant, but that's yes. fine. I mean, wage compression is good. Wage compression is good. Um, well, I wouldn't see wage compression as a sign the Federal Reserve should start raising interest rates. Certainly not. I would like for them to wait until you have wage increases all across the spectrum, um, low wage workers and high wage workers. And we didn't 
see that or we didn't see much of that or that process was only starting to take place um, when Mr. Coronavirus came out of its bat cave and began to do the bat dance on the world. So if we had gotten it right, what do you think that would have meant for the resilience of our society to what's happening now? I really do not know. That is, back in 1992-1993, when the Clinton administration took over, the view on the staff, or at least the view among my portion of the staff, was the fact that the late 1970s and the 1980s had been a decade and a half of slow growth and economic turmoil. Inflation on the one hand, enormous swings in the value of the dollar on the other, Um, The high interest rates and overvaluation of the dollar that began the process of throttling what was America's manufacturing Midwest belt and turning into the Rust Belt we see today. All of those things had happened between 1975 and 1993 because we thought of big errors in managing the government and the government's management of the economy. And so we thought we just need to get the government managing the economy like a competent government then we will have a strong investment-led recovery that will come with, will, will bring with it strong productivity growth and high wage growth. Um, people will start calming down. You know, we'll no longer attend Pat Buchanan rallies in large numbers. And then in the late 1990s, we can actually start having a rational political economic conversation about how, what kind of income distribution we want America to have and what we want the role of the government to support economic growth and to extend the social welfare state um, should be. And indeed, those of us who are in what I would call the Rubin wing of the Clinton administration, we look back and we say we did our jobs. We successfully accomplished our economic policy goals, and we got a wonderful second half of the 1990s, partly because our policies were good and sound, Um, partly because we happened to hit the technological sweet spot with the attaining critical mass of the information technology rays, partly because those two things synergized positively. And yet when 2000 came around and we looked out and when we thought that an America that had had seven years of good governments and strong economic growth, that American politics and political economy should be a lot kinder, a lot softer, a lot more win-win, a lot less there are big enemies out there who we somehow who want to take our stuff or get stuff they don't deserve, who we need to rally against. That wasn't there. And then Obama tried again. You remember Barack Obama was the person who did not see red states or blue states, but only purple states. Brad, I want to, I want to interrupt a little bit here. I want to interrupt and criticize this hagiographic uh, recollection of the Clinton era record Yes, uh, on two counts. The first count being welfare reform. Uh, There are good arguments that the old welfare system needed to be reformed, but the way it was reformed, basically replacing workfare instead of, say, you know, universal payments or something or childcare tax credits or whatnot, um, really, uh, I think, hurt a lot of people, um, or it didn't hurt them immediately because the high growth of the late 90s sort of masked it and temporarily, Mm -hmm. you know, Mm -hmm. temporarily obscured it. But then once the harder times of the 2000s rolled around, those welfare cuts really ended up biting a lot of people who might otherwise have been protected. So that's my first criticism of this record. The second criticism is financial deregulation, the um, Commodity Futures Modernization Act, um, which even Bernie Sanders voted for. but yes. then, um, okay. but this, this, you know, really set the stage more than any Bush era reforms. It was Clinton era reforms that set the stage for the financial crisis of 2008. And really nobody anticipated this at the times those reforms were being made. So I see the later Clinton years being this time that macro was very good. We had this boom going on that masked two extremely, uh, worrying, dangerous erosions of policies that we had had in place before the 90s, which is to say financial regulation and welfare that ended up coming back to bite us in later years through no fault of uh, George Bush, you know, or Barack Obama, certainly, but really uh, during, you know, the the complacency of the Clinton years. Touche. 
I kind of have responses to each part of that. Um, the first response with respect to welfare reform, yes, it was a disaster. The way that Gingrich did welfare reform and Clinton signed it, um, it was not a disaster in blue states. Blue states continued the welfare policies they were they had been enacting in more or less the same trajectory. And in addition, Bill Clinton being a sneaky bastard, um, he managed to sneak 50, a $50 billion expansion, a year expansion of the flows of money to America's working poor through the expansion of the earned income tax credit that in terms of getting resources to poor people did an awful lot more good than the welfare cutbacks did back. However, if you were in red states, if you lived in red states where the power structure took advantage of welfare reform to simply eviscerate the system, and if you were in deep poverty, if you did not have someone in your labor force who was tightly attached to the labor market, and if you weren't able to convince Social Security that you were disabled, um, then welfare reform was a catastrophe, and it indeed has made America's deep poverty a lot worse than it was in the 1970s or throughout the 1980s. And that is on Bill Clinton. He would say it was a necessary compromise to obtain and maintain power in order to do good things, and he is not a dumb man, but that is on Bill Clinton. With respect to financial deregulation, um, the big thing that Clinton did that worried me at the time was the repeal of Glass-Steagall that allowed for commercial banks to merge with investment banks. I think the Clinton administration's that that deregulatory move was well-intended. Uh, the view was that investment banks had a large, cozy, tight group monopoly, and they needed competition, and to allow commercial banks and insurance companies to you know, spread out um, to buy investment banks and then compete with the old investment banks would add competition would have to be a good thing. The worry was that once you had commercial and investment banks together, they would make extremely unwise bets on the grounds that they had a backstop because the government was providing their commercial bank arm with deposit insurance. And so we were setting the stage for an enormous, huge financial crisis. Now, in actual fact, the merging of commercial and investment banks was not the source of the financial crisis. Indeed, it was those investment banks that did not merge with commercial banks. And so it was the deregulation of derivative, not the repeal of Glass-Steagall, that really led to the financial crisis in as much as any single you know, reform. Yeah, I mean, as I say, at the point in time, the worry was Glass-Steagall. Right. And it, that turned out to be the dog that didn't bark. Yeah. Um, the deregulation of derivatives. Um, well, I'd say that in the Clinton administration, derivatives weren't a thing. Um, derivatives became a thing in the first half of the 2000 2000s. Because of the CFMA. And the Clinton administration people who had been, say, willing to let the derivative market grow and see what it produced in 1998, you know, were kind of sounding the alarm by 2005 and 2006 or so, saying that these banks have no clue what's in their derivatives books. And we need to do something about this. Um, so I would be willing to push 80% of that blame onto the Bush administration and reserve 20% for the late Clinton administration. Before we get further into blame, uh, <laughs> which, you know, oh, uh, blame of course, it's, it's important. It's important for us to understand where these ideas come from and not act like we're simply the victims of circumstances. We're political decisions that were made for very specific reasons, serving the interests of very specific people. Yeah. But I want to turn our attention to how this laid the context for what we're going through now, because I think this is a very confusing time economically for most people. We're seeing, seeing record unemployment, GDP contraction at a time when the stock market is still seeming very robust. And I have heard just the most wild and crazy theories uh, from lay people as I've spoken to them about what they think is going on in the economy. And I think a lot of that confusion is then driving other choices that people are making in the crisis for good or for ill. So 
could you guys put the current economic reality in some kind of historic um, uh, context for us? How does this compare to, you know, what we used to call the Great Recession or or the Great Depression that our grandparents went through? It's different. It's it's a very different kind of thing. Yeah. So the Great Depression and the Great Recession were both caused by financial crises, uh, basically bank failures or something like it. Uh, that then, you know, they had this overhang of debt, the financial system was messed up, blah, 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 exacerbated by austerity policies. Very, very similar story there. This is a pandemic, which is different, um, and is also different from what happened to the during the last giant pandemic 100 years ago, uh, the Spanish flu, um, because our economy is very different, and our responses are very different. So really, this is an unprecedented thing. You had fear of the virus, basically keeping people in their homes, not patronizing local service businesses. That you know, created shocks to both demand and supply, uh, which are shorthands we use for more complicated things. But that meant that prices didn't really go anywhere. They they went a little bit down at the beginning, but then really we haven't seen the kind of deflationary pressures we saw then. We haven't seen big overhangs of debt, although savings rates have increased. Um, you know, it's it's not like we're not seeing the financial system paralyzed by debt. The Fed is bailing everybody out, so we're not seeing those pro-austerity uh, sort of mistakes that we saw the, in the Great Depression, Great Recession. So really, everything that happened the other times is is not really happening this time, but other bad things are happening, and we don't quite understand them because we don't have a good precedent for them because the Spanish flu, which would have been the obvious precedent, was just so different. Brad, Doug, what do you think? The standard recession, the standard aggregate demand fall recession in which the system simply freezes up. Because since people don't have income, they aren't spending. And the reason people don't have income is that other people aren't spending. That hasn't been happening yet. Your expenses are my income and vice yes. versa, right? And that hasn't right, right, been right. happening yet. But right. that may well be about to happen. Why not? Why hasn't it happened yet? Um, it hasn't happened yet because we've spent a fortune on giving continuing people's incomes and giving them unemployment insurance as the pandemic has hit so that the people who've lost their jobs have been collecting 600 bucks a week extra and have been spending that you know we've had a high level of unemployment because a lot of thing jobs that are not socially distanced have vanished and we haven't yet figured out useful things for all those people to do and gotten them into doing those useful things. Um, however, with the fact that the Senate has now gone home until after September and with the expiration of a whole bunch of things in the CARES Act, we are about to see how much we can needlessly and stupidly turn what is a supply shock that diminishes our production because we don't want people to engage in lots of work activities that aren't socially distanced into a demand-driven depression in which on top of that, you also have the standard, my because my income is your spending, any big fall in spending unless carefully managed is going to put a lot of people out of work needlessly. When you say needlessly, you mean in the absence of that kind of federal support? Yeah, yeah. There's no reason why it has to happen. You know, there's a reason why my family did not go to the wonderful Brenda's Louisiana Kitchen in Oakland last night and eat lots of extremely good Louisiana food, of which I recommend the cottard with greens and the fried with greens and the fried chicken, especially. Um, which is because we have my 86-year-old mother-in-law and we don't really want her out where she might catch the coronavirus or where we might catch the coronavirus and bring it back. Um, so we drive the, drove there and got takeout. And because we got takeout, there wasn't employment for the waiters and waitresses who otherwise would have been serving us. And, you know, that kind of thing, a whole bunch of job categories have greatly slimmed down and we haven't yet figured out what other useful things those people should be doing right now. There's a reason for that unemployment. There's no reason for the unemployment we saw in the Great Recession or, God forbid, in the Great Depression. It's just a system that isn't working right and doesn't have any systemic rationality attached to it. So how urgent is the need for this support? Like, can this actually wait for the new Congress? Or is the fact that Mitch McConnell has taken the Senate home 
Is it already too late? Like, give us a sense of how these things play out. How much time is left to take the actions you recommend? Um, the time to take them was in May. You want the policy environment to be relatively stable so that people understand what the government's going to be doing. Adding a lot of uncertainty about what the government's going to do, that's a bad thing because people can't plan. And if people can't plan, they're unlikely to hire people or to stop from firing people. They're likely to hunker down and wait to see what happens. And already the checks that were going out have stopped. How big this effect is going to be, how much of a demand of a negative adverse demand shock we're going to be. I think everyone is in wait and see mode. If you look at people's forecasts, they're widely divergent. uh, Because I think Noah's right. We haven't seen anything like this before. Give us a sense of the range of what people are forecasting. What's even possible here? Dogs and cats living together. (laughs) Mass hysteria. Dogs and cats live together, many of them happily already. I know. And cats and rabbits actually make a very good pair. But um, if you look at the scale of the income supplementation that's been happening, just take it away and say, poof, gone, bye. The idea that unemployment, that taking away these benefits will make people go back to work is essentially a fantasy. All you do is you can you can do it by subtraction right? You take the the amount that we've been spending and simply subtract it from people's incomes. And that is the income that will now prevail to a first approximation. So a second ago, Brad, I think you used the word lavish or, or you said you were spending an awful lot of money. But it seems to me, if I'm just doing a little math in my head, compared to the economic shock we would endure if we didn't spend that money, is it really that expensive? No. Um, And indeed, this was what Larry and I were again ranting about back in 2010. Um, that given how low interest rates are and given how high unemployment is for the government to borrow or print and spend money putting people to work doing useful things is better than free. You know, that back in the Middle Ages, back in the late Middle Ages, the Renaissance in Florence, you had the Medici Bank. And, you know, the Medici Bank did not pay you interest the Medici Bank charged you for keeping your money safe. And also, so if the Pope got mad at you and declared you a heretic and you had to flee to some distant country, you could then access your money in the Medici Bank from some distant place through a bunch of cutouts. Um, That for the Medici Bank to issue a note um, wasn't a cost to it because it didn't have to pay interest on it. Instead, it was a profit center because the money flow would go back to it. Since 2008 and the start of the Great Recession, the U.S. government has been in an analogous situation. When the U.S. government issues a bond, um, that is not a source of that is not a source of expense that weighs on the government's finances in the future. That is a way that the government manages to get extra money to spend putting people to work doing useful things. And the question about how is the government going to pay it back, as long as interest rates are this low, it never will have to pay it back. It will simply roll it over. Um, There is no cost to having the government issue bonds and buy stuff right now, and there won't be a cost until interest rates go back up. And when interest rates do go back up, we will indeed have to look at a value of our national debt there and decide how to manage it. But until that happens, it is simply not a constraint people should be worrying about. So I'm sure you see why this is counterintuitive to folks having to do with the fact that running a government is not at all like running a household or a business, despite a lot of rhetoric to the contrary. Right. Well, in some ways it is like running a business. Um, Yeah. So we'll just explain. You've had 10 years of practice now trying to make this argument to folks maybe who are finding it difficult to understand how this could be better than free. Uh, How do you explain it now? If you're the U.S. government right now, people are willing to give you money at less than the rate of inflation. Um, If you are the U.S. government right now, um, you can borrow money. You can use that money to buy up durable commodities that won't rust or spoil. You can pack them all in a container and put it on the Oakland docks or on the New Jersey docks. And you know, provided that you have enough security that the container stays there, um, in 30 years, when the 
bond that you've issued to compensate to for the borrowing comes due, you can go to the container and open it up and you'll be able to sell the stuff in it for more than you have to pay, than more than the amount of money you have to pay to pay back your bond. Um, that the fact is that the U.S. government is regarded as such a worthy counterparty that people are willing to pay the U.S. government to keep their wealth safe. And so in the meantime, over the next 30 years, if the U.S. government has nothing to do, it wants to do with that money, it can simply use it to buy commodities and put them in a box and profit after 30 years. If there is something worthwhile for the government or for the government society to do that requires the government to spend money, it should do so. You know, that not spending the money, but instead hoarding it is a win. And doing something more useful that is actually useful is a much bigger win. So this this gets right to the, the heart of the matter for me, which is I've been speaking so much to folks on the public health side of this crisis and people working the relief programs and efforts. But there's this kind of like lingering question that I keep seeing over and over again, that the public health authorities, you know, Andy Slavitt just recently published a plan, but one of many. Great guy. Uh, yeah, we all like Andy here. It seems to me like pretty clear that if we just paid everybody to stay home yeah. and enforce very strict public health guidelines, this yeah. whole thing could be over in something like six weeks. Yep. And as I talk to people about the fact that this could happen, of course, we have an issue of political will or even political malevolence. To put that aside for a second, though, a lot of well-meaning people still seem to think that running the whole economy on the basis of the full faith and credit of the U.S. federal government, even for six weeks, would be too, quote unquote, too expensive. So can you quantify this cost for us? Like what, if the government got serious about this and really was going to say, you know what, it's not acceptable to have even essential workers risking their lives, spreading the disease, enabling community spread. We are genuinely going to pay everyone who can stay home to stay home for the few weeks necessary to beat the virus. What would it cost? Are we then really stupid afterwards? You tell me. If we're not, What are our choices? If we're not really stupid afterwards... If when those six weeks are over, we have the test and trace apparatus that Noah Smith um, wants us to have. <laughs> if we're then and, and Eric to, helped me set up, by the way, Eric Reese deserves some credit for that. Yes, thank you, sir. We will certainly link to testandtrace.com. Um, if we're then able to stop the virus afterwards, so things go back to normal, what it would do is it would cost us three trillion dollars, and for the economy as a whole, if things continue as they are, which it looks like they will for a long time to come. You'll herd immunity is way out in the distance. And we appear to have a country that in red states, at least, and in the southern half of California, is absolutely inept at figuring out how to do social distancing. If we continue things as they are, um, we will make back that lost wealth from a real six-week shutdown followed by real test and trace. We'll make that back in 18 months. Plus, we will not have had the however many deaths that the having the that just taking the hit and having the virus roll through the population is going to inflict on at least hundreds of thousands of deaths, yeah, right? which is a million. Call it a million or so. So you save a million people to die of something else later on rather than of coronavirus now. And you also waste $3 trillion, but you make that back in 18 months from the fact that you no longer have to keep large chunks of the economy shut. It just seems like this false dichotomy has dominated the national discourse to a level that feels insane to me. Like, how can we have an economy that is functioning if the people are dead? Yeah. And so how can we sacrifice health for economics? It doesn't make sense. We're not going to kill enough people to kill the economy. It's, it's about people being afraid. It's about people, right. you know, cowering in their, in their houses instead of going out and spending. Every piece, you're right, though. Every piece of information we have shows there's no trade-off at all that squelching the virus is the key to resuscitating the economy. I just tweeted a... Um, a picture, you know, for all the, the right-wing people who think that, like, China's faking its numbers and has this huge outbreak and blah, 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 I just tweeted a a video of an absolutely massive party from Wuhan in China. <laughs> massive, massive party, you know, like, off the scale for, like, even Florida or something. And, like, that's what's happening in places that have suppressed the virus. Suppress the virus, bring back the economy. It's that simple. 
So if the new Congress, let's, I, I don't have a lot of hope, I'll be honest, for the current Congress, but if the new Congress is seized with this Keynesian zeal and wants to jumpstart jump the economy to the fullest, what level of spending should they be considering? Leaving aside the political realities of what can be appropriate and all that, but just from a purely economics point of view, if we want to reverse this and prevent it from becoming a depression, what's it going to cost? As you say, a six-week shutdown starting January 4th is the right thing to do, um, followed by the government spending money to get everyone to a temporary job and then back to their job after the shutdown is over. That is, yes, there are lots of details about how you arrange the finances, you know, but as John Maynard Keynes said back during World War II, when people were complaining, well, how will we fund this war? How, how will we fund post-war you know, social welfare and social democratic expansion? What we can do, we can afford. Figure out where you would like all the workers to be and what industries. Um, figure out how you would like to figure out which jobs are worth doing and which jobs aren't. And then only after you've decided what you want the economy to look like, do you need to start worrying about how to arrange the financing. So my view would be whatever it takes. Um, and maybe a good place to start would be a federal jobs guarantee. God knows, if nothing else, you could employ people as test and tracers. Um, God knows, if nothing else, you could employ people checking exactly how much of a um, bollocked up this census was. Biden has a new uh, a new WPA. Yeah, yeah. Well, and that and that's actually the model that I have been working with a lot of these uh, nonprofit organizations to try to help put the different relief efforts that are kind of cir circulating around, you know, think about we're paying restaurants to feed those who are in need. We're doing job training. Or um, build houses for the homeless rather than exactly right. tents that are evicted every month or so. We have to insource domestic manufacturing to get PPE built. Have people out on the streets offering people who look like they have high cholesterol statins. Um, have barefoot doctors checking people's blood pressure week by week. There's an awful lot of work for society that needs to be done, that is undone now, um, that we could pay people to do. And we should first focus on the fact that getting the economy back to full employment is our job number one and worry about arranging the financing kind of later on, especially because... Um, Unless we mess up coronavirus and order of response and order of magnitude worse than we are, it is still the case that everyone in the world is happy to give the U.S. government their money to keep it safe. In large part, I think, because they do think we have political stability. And so if you're living in some other country, you know, China or Russia or India or wherever, you got to think there's a chance that something bad will happen and you'll have to flee in the Learjet or in the rubber boat. And if when you get to L.A. or New York, you have lots of U.S. Treasury bonds, then your life's a lot easier than if you get to New York or L.A. as a penniless refugee. We could lose that ability, but right now that trust on the part of the world is a wonderful thing we have. And we have to use it. And we should use it to, you know, yeah. this is financial, the power to actually mobilize resources um, is a good thing to have right now. And we should mobilize them to stomp the virus and get the economy back to full employment. I was doing a prior conversation with Ron Klain, who obviously, you know, like you was there during the Great Recession and saw um, these fights play out and, you know, the bad faith argumentation and all that. And there's a phrase that haunts me from that time that I want to ask you about, which was, we had a, a notable lack of shovel-ready projects. Nah. We were obsessed with how many shovel-ready projects there were uh, at that time. You recall that from the discourse, though. Surely. That was a silly debate. That was a very silly debate. We could have put people on the street um, kind of dealing with the underserved healthcare needs of America in a month. But we didn't. It haunts me because we didn't because, 
look, we, you know, I think we can assume that there will be a Tea Party 2.0. You know, there's going to be an immediate pushback against whatever needs to be done, uh, most likely next year. And so, is there a role for the private sector to play now? You know, especially philanthropists. Uh, you know, obviously, I talk a lot to entrepreneurs and a lot of entrepreneurs who, who listen to these conversations. So, of course, that's who I have in mind. Is there a role to play in piloting and demonstrating the scalability of WPA-style programs between now and when the new Congress is sworn in? Well, I suppose, firstly, there's a role for the male plutocrats of America who broke 70-30 for Trump back in 2016. And a bunch of them are, so are still whispering in meetings, you know, don't tell my wife, but I'm voting for Donald again. I really like my tax cut. Um, there's definitely a role for them to man up and use, spend all the money they have in order to restore the Republican Party to sanity and to get Fox News and Sinclair Media out of our public sphere as fast as possible. Um, I think that's the first thing that they should do. As to otherwise, that yes, you know, if you're a philanthropist, figuring out how to get some labor-intensive philanthropic project that's socially distanced going this summer and fall would be an absolutely wonderful thing to do. I think that there's two things that rich people should be giving their money to right now. Right. Um, the first is election integrity. Yes. I think, you know, giving money to Joe Biden is fine. And of course, resuscitating our country depends on getting rid of Trump. And Biden is the only alternative to Trump. Uh, so electing Biden is good. But I think that the danger of a an insecure election, uh, a disputed election, yes. fracture and communal violence and all mm -hmm. those bad things is greater than the danger of, you know, Trump just like winning again, like in 2016. It's because the, the chance is greater and the con and the consequences are also greater. It's it's yep. a looming thing. I would say that the, the possibility of this happening is now not a tail risk. It is a reasonably likely event in the middle of the probability distribution of a hung disputed election, a constitutional crisis. It is not something to be poo-pooed or dismissed. It is staring us right in the face, and we are on course to have exactly that. Therefore, election security and election integrity are the number one thing to give money to. Um, the number two thing to give money to is uh, things that can suppress the pandemic. And the number one thing that can suppress the pandemic is rapid tests. Uh, especially antigen tests, uh, making those widely available everywhere is a thing that needs to happen immediately, not just for testing and contact tracing to be effective, but also for trials. Uh, actually, so recently, um, there was a New York Times article about how the most promising therapy against COVID-19, which is called monoclonal antibodies, has been delayed by months because trials were unable to proceed because tests couldn't come back fast enough. Mm -hmm. And so so giving money to faster testing is extremely helpful. I don't know if those trials can use antigen tests or if they'll have to modify their procedure to do that. But um but that, that's beside the point. So faster testing is, you know, is a must and um you know scale up antigen testing as fast as possible everywhere. But I think election integrity and security have to be job number one, because if we enter a constitutional crisis, you know, a, um, a coup, uh, uh, technically an auto golpe, intercommunal violence, uh, and ultimately relying on the Supreme Court and ultimately the military to restore constitutional rule, that is the worst case scenario. We must avoid this. And it's a lot more likely than people are willing to let themselves realize. How could we avoid it, given that Donald Trump will say the morning after the election, I won, and Sinclair Media and Fox are at least 50-50 likely to back him? That's a very good question. So you make, it, you make his claims as non-credible as possible by funding you know, organizations to get out the vote, to get poll watchers. Poll watchers mm -hmm. are extremely important and effective. Mm -hmm. um, you fund efforts to shore up the integrity of the United States Postal Service so that mail-in ballots don't get delayed and lost, and you fund uh, legal services for the inevitable legal challenge. Um, let me add that everyone should start wearing blue every day. Uh, Why? That the whole point behind a color revolution was <laughs> that you had the number of people who were opposed 
to the government and the security services out on the streets was so obvious. Right. And it so will I be think it's time, time to start wearing a blue armband or a blue shirt or a blue everything from now until um, Donald Trump is gone. You can pick another color if you like, um, but blue seems the obvious one. And I think that tomorrow is not too early to start. But as for, as for testing, yes, you know, if you'd, I mean, A, I would not have believed what has happened if you'd gone to me back in February. Um, I would have said we would have stomped the virus by now. If you told me we haven't stomped the virus by now, I would have said, oh, well, then something's gone wrong with its, in terms of its evolution, and we're testing everyone every week, right? It's inconceivable where we are now from the point of view of February. And so obviously we're going to need some kind of Truth and Reconciliation Commission at the end of this, because there's just going to be no way to have any kind of healing or to learn from our experience here without really understanding how much of this was in bad faith, how much of it was cynical, how much of it was a good faith effort to do the right thing that failed versus uh, something more nefarious. But until that happens, you know, we, we can't know. So, of course, we have to do what we can to protect the integrity of our elections and to help people where we can. For those that want to help on the USPS, by the way, um, the ResistBot petition for USPS has just crossed, I think, 1.2 million signatures. It's by far the most engagement we've ever seen uh, for civic action. We'll put, uh, put a link or you can just text USPS to 50409 if you want to get involved there. But I want to steer us back to a, another kind of conversation that I've had with philanthropists, especially, who kind of look at the mess that we're in, see, you know, and I just take the example of hunger, because I, I've been working on that recently, where we're, we need to feed something like 30 million people in this country. And it's not like our food security system was awesome, but in the old normal. And yet, the cost of doing so, you know, is being borne by uh, to some extent, local and state governments, but they're cash strapped. So philanthropists are being asked to step in and fill the gap. And in this, as with PPE, as with what we're seeing in education, the need is so immense that many philanthropists are feeling overwhelmed. Like this is a government responsibility. Only the federal government has the resources to do this. It feels like a drop in the bucket. So yes, you know, I'm feeding a couple million people, but it's, you know, it's not sustainable. It, it's it's kind of a bridge to nowhere. And so I've been hoping that a message around, hey, we're going to build a 21st century WPA, or there's going to be some kind of scalable relief program that requires pilot programs that, that it gives us some action to take in 2020 and says that the money that we spend on proofs of concept is not wasted money, but is potentially a path to something more sustainable. So what do we do now? Well, money spent on proof of concept is never wasted provided the concept is good, provided the concept is actually proved, right? Um, that you cannot save everyone, but that does not mean you should not save one person, right? Um, that you should do what you can where you are with the resources that you have. That's exactly and right. Indeed, yeah. hopefully, hopefully one of the hundred or so let's save one person tomorrow, let's save this person tomorrow, will indeed turn out to be scalable and you'll be able to diffuse it and scale it. Which just means we, for every one program we want to scale, we have to try 100 experiments. Yeah, but the idea that you have to start out thinking we are going to scale this to nationwide or global is fundamentally the wrong way to start thinking about it. Um, you know, what you have to do is find something that works and then publicize it and then scale it rather than start out thinking top down that you will, through concentrated thought, figure out what works um, and then start it in a pilot project and then immediately scale it up. You know, that top down, we understand what is what we are going to be want to be doing in five or 10 years almost never works letting a thousand flowers bloom and then reinforcing success. To the extent that humanity has made progress, it's been made progress by doing that. So even though you advocate for massive uh, federal government-led stimulus into the economy, you're not advocating for central planning? Definitely not. Definitely not. Especially in something like now, where we have no obvious models to follow. When the central planning is being done by someone competent, yeah. If you're Japan in the 1920s, it's kind of pretty clear what kinds of factories you should build to make an industrial civilization, um, because that's your task. 
For us now, it's not at all clear um, who we should take as a model. Although maybe in a generation, it will be very clear who the United States will take as a model. Well, it's clear who we should take as a model on health care, for example. Yeah, I think the age in which America is a country that others take as a model is gone. That was the age from 1870 to maybe 2000, maybe 2016. That age is now gone. On everything from infrastructure costs to healthcare delivery to a functioning public sphere to a legislative process that works um, to our ability to get people exercising to our ability to stomp the virus, we are way, way behind the rest of the world in terms of using the resources we have to actually deliver something worthwhile. What prior economic theories do you feel like are being challenged or discredited by this situation? And maybe which new or what was previously seen as avant-garde ideas uh, are being vindicated uh, from an economics point of view? I think that essentially no one had really been modeling a situation like this before this pandemic, and therefore very few old ideas are getting challenged um, one idea that's getting challenged is, is the idea so, – so we always knew that there was this limit to how much you know, deficit spending funded by monetary expansion you could do before people just say, okay, this is never going to end, and then you get like hyperinflation, whatever. And so some people will say, oh, we've learned that our limit is much higher than we thought, but maybe not because a lot of the spending and monetary expansion that we've been doing is explicitly temporary. People know the virus will go away. People know that this spending and this monetary expansion will eventually end. And so essentially, no matter, even if you believe like classical theory, there's little reason for that, for a temporary burst of spending and monetary expansion to result in massive inflation. Um, it would have to be something that people like thought would, would never end basically, or was, was structural, which we didn't have. Is that possibly why this would be different in the case of a universal basic income? Yeah, exactly right. Even the, um, you'll notice even the MMT people, so MMT is this, is this theory. Um, I don't really understand what it says, and it's never very clear what it says. Well, it says many things, depending on who you're talking to and what the phase of the moon is. <laughs> right. So the MMT people, even they say we shouldn't fund a UBI with, you know, sort of permanent structural deficit spending. Um, the, the most expansive program they're willing to endorse is a job guarantee, uh, which they think will not cannibalize the private sector. They're probably wrong about that. Uh, in, at least at, in good times. Um, but then they, but basically they, even they recognize that like permanently spending tons and tons of money financed by monetary expansion is probably a bad idea. So really there's very little in terms of qualitatively that that's being challenged about the economic orthodoxy, but quantitatively it has highlighted some of the existing failures of economics no one in econ has really told us how much we can actually borrow and spend before it becomes a problem and the last credible attempt to sort of do that was uh i, I say credible but it was only sort of credible it was like thomas Sargent, 1982 oh, right like no one has really done any work saying when looking at other countries that have had you know, sort of these hyperinflationary collapses and saying when and under what conditions does that happen? When do we have to be worried about that? There's really no credible work on that. I have a memo I did for the Clinton transition team in 1992 saying that what happened, you knew it was happening when bad news about your deficit meant that your currency did not strengthen but weaken and that that was about to happen in the United States back then with our deficit and with our debt national debt at a level less than 50% of a year's national product. <laughs> <laughs> well that was one of my largest analytical failures in my profession, I must say. So it seems like though that your belief is that the debate we were having in 2009-2010 what was it Paul Krugman who called them the zombie ideas that just could not be put down? Yeah. Do you feel like the tide has turned now that there's an understanding of what this kind of depression is going to require? Or do you expect, forgive my phrase, an epidemic of bad faith to reappear shortly to challenge those ideas once again? I think the epidemic of bad faith has already appeared. Um, I think we had the epidemic of bad faith earlier this spring with the right-wing economists pushing that, you know, the herd immunity would appear soon and it would be too expensive um, to lock down the economy or engage in social distancing. 
Definitely the bad faith appeared during the discussion of the Trump McConnell Ryan tax cut. You know, you have Robert Barrow from Harvard out there saying that it's going to lower um, the cost of capital by so much that we're going to have an extra, what was it, 7% of national product shifting over from consumption to investment spending as people take advantage of this enormous bonanza to invest more in building up capital. That simply never happened at all. There's going to be an awful lot of mess um, in the public sphere and in kind of technical economics um, as this rolls forward. Um, and do you know how to deal with that, how to try to get the message through, you know, is very going to be very hard. Um, I'm not optimistic. We'll try. Brad, Noah, thank you both so much for making time for this. Oh, thank you very much for having us on. That's our pleasure. Let me ask you one last question, which is simply, how do we get out of the crisis? I think the right way to get out of the crisis is for Mike Pence to do what Mike Pence, if he were a patriot, would have done on January 21st, 2017, and transmitted the letter saying that in his estimation, Donald Trump is unable to competently perform the duties of President of the United States, and he's invoking the 25th Amendment. And then <laughs> lock the country down for six weeks and go back to a normal test in trace like New Zealand, like Australia, like Taiwan, like Korea, like Japan, like China, like France, like Spain, like Italy, like Switzerland, like Austria, like Germany, like Norway, like Sweden. <laughs> Am I wrong? You're not you're not wrong, but I, okay, I think I'm not when wrong. we're talking about Mike Pence, so it's time to start talking about realistic things, realistic things. That, why is that unrealistic? That could happen this afternoon. You know, as you're talking about that, it makes me think about all of the many, many newspaper editorials calling on President Bill Clinton to resign. Yes. And I, one of the persistent mysteries I've had is why there haven't been similar editorials calling for something like what you're describing. I mean, how old were you, Noah, back in 1989? <laughs> in 1989, people went out in the street and told the East German government it should resign. And then its successor should immediately start negotiating with Helmut Kohl for the absorption of the German East into the Bundesrepublik. And people dismissed that as unrealistic. But, okay, so the question is not what could people who are committed to being bad do if they decided to not be committed to being bad. We might as well ask Donald Trump to bec become fit for the presidency and, and do the right thing, you know. We can ask that all until we're blue in the face, but it just won't make a difference. The question is, people listening to this podcast who have good intentions, who are competent, what can they do? Right? Isn't that the question, Eric? You tell me. Well, okay. So, all right. If that's the question I'm answering, then the question is, um, you know, we're, do as much as we can in the next, you know, two and a half months to assure election integrity and to, you know, get rapid testing out there. But then just elect Joe Biden, uh, suppress the damn virus, give the money to people to sustain them um, and get us on a real recovery plan with, you know, like support for small businesses that want to open to revitalize city centers, bail out the universities, bail out the state budgets um, and things like that. And it's not hard. We know how to do it. We just have to get the leaders who are willing to do it. Um, I think Noah has it 100 percent. And let me address a message to a bunch of other people who in late 2016 thought that Hillary Rodham Clinton had it in the bag and that as a result, they could start maneuvering to improve their position for the Hillary Rodham Clinton administration. Um, an awful lot of people took an awful lot of steps that reduced her chances of winning the election in the fall of 2016. Um, chief, the biggest of them certainly was then FBI director, James Comey, um, and why he hasn't given all he has to the poor and taken up a life of anonymous service to others. Um, having kind of people flagellate him every day, I do not understand, but an awful lot of people thought that they could take their eye off the prize and start worrying about, say, um, which of the people in Biden's inner circle they want to try to kick out of that inner circle and you know, what policies they want to see come 
2021 and how to get myself in a better position for the Biden administration? Don't. Don't be James Comey. <laughs> Keep your eye on the ball. The eye on the ball is getting a competent government for America on January 21st. Um, that means election security. Um, that means wearing something blue every day starting now. Um, that means getting test and trace up and running as fast as possible. That means getting other politicians elected who will understand that what we can do, we can afford. You know, that these that financial sustainability and actual physically doing stuff in the ground are not two different questions. They are the same question. Noah, Brad, thank you both so much for your time. You are welcome. Thank you. This has been Out of the Crisis. I'm Eric Ries. Out of the Crisis is produced by Ben Ehrlich, edited by Zach McNeese and Sean McGuire. Music composed and performed by Cody Martin. Hosting by Breaker. For more information on ways to get involved, visit helpwithcovid.com. If you or someone you know is leading an effort to make a difference, please tell me about it. I'm at E-R-I-C-R-I-E-S on Twitter. Thanks for listening. Please rate and subscribe wherever you like to listen.